I'm so glad that you remember that I told you about the way Harvey sexually harassed me because I'm a teller. You know, I've always told everybody about the experiences because I did intuitively know that it wasn't my shame and it wasn't my burden to carry and that it was their patriarchal violence and misogyny. Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest, Ashley Judd, obviously needs very little introduction. As we know, she is an American actress and global activist known for such movies as Heat, Double Jeopardy, Divergent, and so many others. Ashley and I have known each other for about 20 years now and together have traveled the world on behalf of girls and women's healthcare, especially sexual reproductive health and HIV AIDS prevention. In this show, which there will be two parts of, we talk about her struggle with sexual trauma, her journey of recovery, exposing Harvey Weinstein and her most recent horrendous accident in the Congo. I am absolutely delighted to introduce my partner in crime, Ashley Judd. Ashley, my darling, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And congratulations. It's a wonderful show. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Ashley, as I told you yesterday, and I want to say it on air, that you have taught me so much. And I am mm-hmm. grateful. We've had many trips. I counted. We've been to 12 countries together, uh, doing incredible work that we've measured. And 20 years ago, I approached you to become an ambassador for the work um, for Youth AIDS and PSI. And We worked a lot with marginalized women. Why did you say yes? Well, first of all, I must reciprocate and say you absolutely changed my life. So thank you. And thank you for having believed in me. And I said yes, because when I asked in a very forthright and probing and probably somewhat obnoxious way, if the work was feminist, you said, yes, it was feminist work. And it really boiled down to that. I mean, I remember when you approached me and I was working at the time on a film and I was exhausted and worn out and I had reached the up with which I could not put with pop culture and misogyny and patriarchy. And I wrote you back this two-page, single-spaced feminist manifesto that my women's studies professors at the University of Kentucky would have been proud of. And interrogated PSI's approach and you, because how could I do due diligence on, a, on an international NGO that had grassroots programs in 65 countries around the world? And I was more than satisfied with your answer. Mm. Well, I remember we had just done the Youth AIDS MTV Staying Alive concert at the time, which had aired in, gosh, 140 countries. And it had uh, rappers and artists um, who we all know do speak very badly about women and portray women in their videos in a very bad way. And that was your actually response to me. And that was your worry. And I remember Mm -hmm. saying, actually, that's why I'm involving them, because they're one of the reasons that women aren't portrayed in the right way. And so we then set off on our journey together. And you taught me along the way so much about self-care. That's really when I started to care for myself when I met Mm. you. And you were going along a similar journey. In fact, during our journey together, you decided to take treatment. Mm -hmm. And I saw you and the pain that you were suffering, which came from early childhood trauma. Tell us about that. Yeah, I would be happy to. I mean, Trauma not transformed is trauma that we absolutely will transfer. And, you know, I'm a survivor of so many different forms and manifestations of childhood sexual abuse. I was molested for the first time that I remember when I was seven years old. And I say that I remember because I was sexually assaulted in a Kmart when I was in junior high school. And that man is still a registered sex offender in Tennessee. And I have no recollection of that assault because the mind is brilliant and ingenious and it stores away traumatic memories in ways that are highly 
protective and creative. And then I was raped twice when I was 15 years old, when I was doing something allegedly called modeling, which was really just a summer of commercial sexual exploitation. And then I was raped by someone I'd known since the second grade in 1998. And, you know, I'm, 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 I'm just indebted eternally to my sister who had an eating disorder who sought treatment for her eating disorder in 2006. And I was invited at Shades of Hope, this wonderful mom and pop independent eating disorder that never sold out to the corporations um, for inviting me to her family week. Because when I showed up at her family week, you know, allegedly to support her, they looked at me and said, hey, there's help and hope for a woman like you too. And at first they suggested I find a 12-step program that would support me for having been so affected by the family disease of alcoholism. and by the end of the week, they offered a place for me in treatment strictly for my adult child issues. And in particular, so much of what they called the unresolved childhood grief. And they said, hey, your sister's disease looks different, but you come from the same family system. You come from that same woundedness. And when I just fell to pieces, you know, and they said, hey, no one ever thinks to do an intervention on the lost child because that's the role I had played in this family system with a lot of neglect and a lot of abandonment. And then I started really doing work on this patriarchal wounding and all the misogyny of which I had been the recipient because, and this is what I, we really want to talk about in a universal way that's applicable to so many girls and women and also, you know, to, to a much lesser statistical extent, but also to boys, to boys and men and, and male identifying folks. When a perpetrator aggresses, they are shameless and they don't have a containment boundary and they put that toxic shame their aggression, because it's really about control, domination, and violence. It really doesn't have anything to do with sex, and we conflate that in our society. And they put that toxic shame and their violence and their control and their domination on this vulnerable, needy, dependent child who is still boundaryless. And so what I had the opportunity to start to do in this, in this beautiful, safe container was give that toxic shame back and realize it had never been my shame to carry in the first place and disentangle this patriarchal wounding from my own precious inner child and really take a stand as an empowered adult woman on behalf of that kid who didn't have anybody, including society, standing up on her behalf. And Ashley, when you delivered such an incredible speech at the Women's March. Hell yeah. (laughs) Does that passion you have as such an incredible activist and ambassador for women all over the world now, does that come, do you think, from that early trauma that you had? People ask all the time, how can I make a difference? And in which ways can I be disruptive and influential? And I believe that when we're wounded healers and we've had the opportunity to do the work and and to do that self-care, as you so rightly identified, on our own woundedness, that's the place where we can be most effective. And we have to practice our self-care first. You know, self-care, to quote Melody Beattie, the great codependency recovery healer, isn't selfish, it is self-care. And so when I can find that place where I'm the most tender and really do my work, preferably evidence-based and trauma-informed, you know, maybe also with the support of of a 12-step program that's right for me, then I find my empowerment and my righteous anger, and I've got the endurance to go the distance, and I come out of my abundance rather than from my scarcity. Mm. And when we were doing the work together around the world and Gosh, so many memories. I mean, we can we can do a whole podcast, actually three podcasts about the things that we've seen, the opportunities that we've had for service, and just telling stories of of some of the incredible women uh, and survivors that we've met around the world. But do you feel that this work has helped to heal you? I think that it has taught me how ubiquitous men's entitlement to females' bodies. Is I mean, I remember when we were in, you know, Kamatipura and in Falkland Road, the, the brick and mortar um, brothel districts in, in certain cities in India. And 
uh, there was a pol- some police officers there and I thought, oh, you know, how nice of them to show up because, you know, in, in my entitlement and privilege, I thought they had something to do with me. And they were just there to rape women. They were just there to exploit sex from women who were trapped in systems of sexual oppression and prostitution. And then I remember when we were in Madagascar and we were sitting, you know, there was obviously the, the extraordinary and, and unbelievable grief and trauma of being with women who were being sold by their husbands on the streets and they would take the rice sacks and create these provisional tents in which they were under which they were being exploited for as little as 50 cents while their husbands stood by holding their their infants but we were also in a in a house that was used as a as a brothel and all of these women who were trapped in systems of prostitution were sharing you know their stories from whence this had come to their lives and one finally just waved her hand and she said same old same old and i was like it's poverty, it's gender inequality, it's lack of access to education, it's girls doing being kept out of school to do all the chores. That's really what it taught me. And yes, I identified with the trauma, and then I also identified with these insertion points along the spectrum of possible change and empowerment. You know, it starts with, with some self-esteem, and it starts with some love, and it starts with the possibility of one adult having a different attitude toward a girl's worth and her potential. Mm -hmm. Actually, during that trip to Madagascar, uh, I actually found that to be one of the most emotionally intense trips that we had done, especially because of the ladies in the rice sacks, you know, lying on their backs in the mud, as you say, having sex for 50 cents. And then you know, that's the life. It was so hard. I remember we shot a documentary whilst we were there. And afterwards, we, we went to South Africa and we were, we were so lucky to have an audience with the incredible uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Tell the story of, of what happened. It's, it feels like yesterday to me. It was, I, 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 can't, I, got, I would tell the story, but it's impossible for me to tell the story without crap. Right. So t- tell us, tell us what happened there when we when we got to him. I think we were both emotionally uh, and physically exhausted as well at that point. So, <laughs> yes, I'm, I mean Madagascar is, is such a poor country. I remember admiring the natural beauty of and and how pristine it was, and then I realized, oh, there's no trash because there are no goods. There's literally nothing to throw away, and. When we and I remember also, I slept one night eighteen hours out of just the sheer physical and emotional exhaustion of the level of exploitation and the grief and the trauma of it. And I'm just so grateful that my psyche can hide out and sleep <laughs> sometimes. And when we got to see Father Tutu, you know, I'm bold enough to have imposed on him for some spiritual direction, which I urgently needed. And we were telling him about. You know, because I I am a person of faith and I've come from a faith tradition and I have a spiritual practice. And I told him, you know, I was praying while I was um, on the sidewalk with the women who were being, you know, paid to be raped in in the mud, as you were describing. And I just couldn't feel the presence of something kind or or good or nurturing. And he told the story about a man um, in a concentration camp during World War II who had been assigned by a particularly nasty SS officer to dig latrines. And he was down in the feces and in the, in the excrement. And this SS officer would just heckle him and berate him and call him filthy names. And finally, he just thought he was hurling the final insult at him. And he said, ha, so where is your God now? To which the Jewish man said, oh, in here with me. Oh, that just gets me every time. It really does. And I, I often think back to that moment when when times are hard and it gives me so much inspiration. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that. So to get back to your early days of sexual assault and trauma and molestation, and as we know, Ashley, at least one in four mm-hmm. women suffer. You know, I come also from a family of mental health issues. My mother was an alcoholic and also had bipolar. And it has a, also a profound trauma of any kind has a profound effect on you. And it also affects your intimacy. Now, I don't know anyone 
who has managed to overcome <laughs> um, these issues and, and also enjoys sex as much as you. <laughs> uh, and I'm not the only one who said that. <laughs> and we all, you know, gosh, I, you know, still struggle to this day sometimes. But of course, I've, especially through this work, I'm learning every day from incredible people who come on the podcast and, and, and talk about all of this, including trauma and how it, how it works together with our own ability to be vulnerable and intimate and have pleasure. So how have you done it, Ashley? You mentioned to me yesterday that you put it in one bucket. There's one bucket for that. And then there's the other bucket for you and, and, and your pleasure. But tell us about that. How have you done it? It's a great question. And I wish that I could just spread my my good fortune or the way my body has responded to all folks everywhere who have unfortunately had a different experience or who have conflated molestation and assault and rape with physical intimacy between equal partners because somehow by the grace of God, that hasn't been my experience. And, you know, when I was molested for the first time and this old man sat me on his lap and did what he did, I just knew that that had nothing to do with when I hit puberty and started to experience boys because I'm a cis woman who's heterosexual, that they were entirely different species and they had nothing to do with each other. And as I said earlier, you know, assault is about power, control, and violence. And I also think I had, you know, a mixed experience. It was inappropriate what my dad and his partner did, leaving, you know, exposing my sister and me to their adult sexuality and nudity and their joy of sex book. Uh, the way that they did it was well-intentioned but inappropriate. And the joy of sex book is a very incredible text, you know, and in my curiosity, I read it and it gave me, it comes from a wisdom stream, you know, this book, and it is so appropriate and empowered and it's medically accurate. And I think it was like, oh, this is what that's really about. And it gave me a proper education and a frame of reference that I could hold aside and so I think there was some good fortune in stumbling upon that. And then, you know, I also think that um, in spite of all the entitled jerks and all the coercion along the way, you know, and, 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 and not giving consent and then proceeding anyway, I had some really lovely equal partners with whom I had safe healing experiences who validated for me, this is what it really is about. And I can trust myself and I have this realm of safety. And, you know, for people who have different experiences, you know, please get evidence-based trauma-informed help. There's always EMDR. There's always writing with your non-dominant hand. There's always doing anger work. And make sure that that work is feminist and that you are centered in your reality and validated in your experience. Mm. I have a, a very distinct memory of us being in Thailand. And being in Pattaya, I believe, uh, we visited a brothel. Yeah. And uh, there was six or eight beautiful ladies sitting around us. And we were having a very deep conversation, as we always do when we are, when we are on our trips. And we'll get into the nature of that conversation, which was horrifying. But I remember you saying to me in the car afterwards, with your head in my lap and you were weeping and I was rubbing your, your hair or your head and drawing little circles on your back. And you looked up at me and you said, I cannot wait to get home to my husband and make love. Mm. Do you remember that? I don't. Your husband then, of course, Dario. And, and I just thought to myself, that's so interesting. Yeah. The last thing I was thinking about after that discussion was being intimate. I have to be honest. Yeah. But it just goes to show that you have the ability to digest that horrible scenario and still think about the love and intimacy and pleasure that, that you had with your then husband. And, and good for me, because, you know, the other, the word that comes up again is safety. 
you know, and there's such a difference between violence and safety. And what I, I mean, I remember so many things about that particular brothel. I mean, first of all, there was the woman who called my farm friend who was just back in the brothel that specific day because she had been sold by her parents into the brothel. And then she managed to, to eke enough money out of her prostituted experience to go home. And then she ran out of money to feed her son. And her only recourse was to go back into the system. But there was a white man, so obviously from somewhere in the West, standing in a doorway with his arm up, just so predatorial, towering over a young woman who he was fixing, you know, to pay to rape. And that is just so different, again, from the egalitarian experience of two consensual people who love and adore each other and want to experience spiritual intimacy. And you've been very lucky to find a number of those partners. Yeah, I think a lot of people struggle often with finding a significant other that they can truly let go and be intimate and feel safe with. You know, as we know, there are a lot of bad men out there. Harvey Weinstein, of course, being one of them. And gosh, 12 years ago, I remember you telling me the story of what happened to you with him. and. I remember saying to you, actually, gosh, you have to expose him. And you said to me, he's one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. And how would I do that? Of course, then you went on to do it. Uh, and you were one of the first women to come out and talk about it. How, how do you feel now about what has happened and, and how it's changed the world? And it has changed the world with Me Too, Time's Up. Talk to me about that. Well, I'm so glad that you remember that I told you about the way Harvey sexually harassed me because I'm a teller. You know, I've always told everybody about the experiences because I did intuitively know that it wasn't my shame and it wasn't my burden to carry and that it was their patriarchal violence and misogyny. And, you know, I told that story in even more detail than I did then was published in the New York Times and Jody Cantor and Megan Tui's Pulitzer Prize winning investigative report to Variety two years almost to the day, right? And no one was paying attention. And then the sea change occurred when the, when the New York Times piece came out. And, you know, I just felt natural. I felt like myself. It's like, oh, folks are finally paying attention. And I'm so glad that so many people have found their voices and that they could take a stand and that they feel validated and heard and that they could express themselves in a consequential way and that there is a reckoning and some accountability. You know, my magic wand is that Harvey could have a restorative justice process. I mean, I'm not a punitive person and I don't think that the, that the, that the criminal justice system is particularly effective, but I don't think Harvey is, is, is primed to have a change of heart but if his survivors have a greater peace, then that's what we can all accept with where we are at the criminal justice system at this stage. I think you told me that you had forgiven him. Yeah, yeah, because forgiveness is no favor. I do it for myself. Mm. I do it for myself. Mm -hmm. And what do you predict now going forward? Do you think that, I mean, obviously there's been so many other high profile cases now, Matt Lauer and other people being exposed. So what do you think is the future? And also, do you think there's any danger in what's going on with the Me Too movement? You know, my, my magic wand is that there will be more female coalitions like the Bonobos have, and that we will, that we will understand that when we support and encourage and nurture ourselves that we can do that more safely with each other. You know, an example is that, you know, my former husband's wife is someone I love, respect, and admire, and she has my unconditional fond regard. And this is not typically the kind of female-to-female -female alliance that is common or acceptable because, oh my God, you're not supposed to be friends with someone who's sleeping with someone you used to sleep with, right? I mean, that's a kind of a taboo in our society. And 
you know, the more successful she is in her life, the, I think the, the happier I, I, I am, you know, and I want, you know, because men have these alliances that privilege their interests, right? I call, and Diane Rosenfeld from Harvard Law School calls it the fallacy of the male protection racket, where men allow other men to hurt women. And also, I'm supposed to rely on a male for protection from other men. Yeah, there's some form of an oxymoron there. <laughs> Absolutely, right? Like, I need a man to walk me home in order to stay safe from another man. But when a man violates me or harasses me, another man isn't going to intercede to stick up for me because we have this bystander problem. Yeah. And you told me something very, very interesting about the Nobos yesterday, about the females becoming more powerful in the, in the, is it a pack of Nobus? <laughs> so, so bonobos and chimpanzees, we share the vast majority of our DNA with them, like over 98%. And our evolution is, is intricately tied with theirs. And we have choices, you know, do we want to be more like chimpanzees or do we want to be more like bonobos? And I think the answer is very clear. A hundred percent of female chimpanzees are severely beaten by males and they're sexually coerced. And in bonobos, there's a total absence of sexual coercion. There's no infanticide. There's no recorded homicide. Bonobos have choice in populations. They totally experience pleasure. I mean, it's very evident from watching them copulate. They also have female-female and male-male sex. And they're matriarchal. They're (laughs) (laughs) non-binary. The non-binary nobos. (laughs) They're co-dominant and it's female coalitions that underpin the stable society. So when two groups of bonobos come together, they get very excited, they share their food, they copulate, and they groom each other. Unlike, you know, chimpanzees who beat each other up. So where do we want to go? It is so, so interesting. And, you know, on that note, actually, you know, you've witnessed how women coming together, both with animals, but also with humans, you know, through Maverick Collective and that we did with Melinda Gates and you were very involved in that. And now also with the Body Agency Collective where we have brought a whole group of women together who really care about this. I I have always, as you know, believed that women working together with women will solve any problem. Talk to me a little bit about that because I know you feel the same way and I know you've seen it happen. You know, I I don't think that women are a monolith and I think we can have unity without being uniform and that our spaciousness is big enough to hold complexity and paradox. And then if we remember each of us has the right to be wrong and we can have differences without being punitive and controversial and we can hold disagreement without making each other bad and wrong, We have to, I think, each have a self-care practice and some kind of a wellness practice because I know that in my own thinking, I can still be very, you know, all or nothing or black and white and rigid and get into the both and. But when I'm able to have the, the either or, but when I'm able to have the both and kind of thinking, then I'm able to hold more nuanced thinking. So I was just reading that New Yorker piece about the history of of critical feminist thought. And there was this, you know, incredible weekend in England about 50 years ago where they decided that it was capitalism that was the source of female oppression. And then there was a second conference that followed that that was like, oh my gosh, you are so wrong. How silly can you be? It's males violence against females. And I'm like, it's not either or, it's both and. Mm. They're inextricably linked, you know, and so we have to be able to hold this complexity and that's what will allow women of all kinds to come together to really empower each other and tackle those systemic problems. And, you know, that's why we need Me Too and Time's Up. You know, they're discrete organizations. That's why we need, you know, in our intersectional approach to feminism and lifting women of all kinds. And let's be honest, you know, women have done some incredible things in our history and also very recently. I mean, I remember, not to drop names, but um, Bono at uh, one of our galas, uh, he came for 
Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And he gave that incredible speech talking of animals. He he gave that incredible speech about lionesses. I don't I actually recorded it and often listen to it when I need moments of inspiration. And Bono came for you and Speaker Pelosi. And, you know, look what she has done. I mean, she has dug her heels in and she did not budge. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what a she's one of my absolute heroes. I know she is for you too, but you know, we are powerful, uh, but we still have a, a long way to go. Do you not think? Oh, we absolutely do. We absolutely do. You know, and, and again, I, I bring it back so much to the self, you know, I internalize misogyny and I still internalize patriarchal attitudes. I mean, I've with the accident that I had and all of that. I mean, I've gained 20 pounds and I find myself being intimidated to go out in public because I'm afraid of the public critique, you know? And that's just nothing but projecting onto society what they're going to reflect back to me because I'm so acutely aware of normative standards of female beauty, right? And we all have to work on our individual attitudes and take radical responsibility for self to deconstruct these chauvinistic things inside of ourselves while also working collectively. I mean, Ashley, to hear you be so vulnerable and admit to that, I mean, you've been called multiple times one of the most beautiful women in the world, and you are, and still are, inside and out. And The fact that you would admit to that, I mean, we all gained 20 pounds, right? Everyone's gained the (laughs) COVID-19 or 15 or whatever it is they they call it. But the fact that you also struggle with that when, you know, you've been so acclaimed and celebrated and worshipped and told so many times how beautiful you are is, I think, very helpful to people listening out there. And we all have our insecurities and everybody is human. However, I don't think we can always blame men. I think we need, and you've admitted to this, that we need men in order to move the needle on equality. And, you know, so many men also lift women up, men who have daughters, wives, mothers, grandmothers, uh, who they highly respect. And, you know, I get back to the Me Too movement where a couple of guys have told me that they're terrified now of even making a move or flirting or you know, they're terrified. Do you, do you think that is something we should worry about? I think they should just talk about it. You know, they should just be open and vulnerable and talk about it. And the media plays such a huge part in our body positivity. I, I worry about Lily, my my daughter, who watches all these YouTubes and Instagram posts and TikToks and you know, already wants to start wearing little cut-off T-shirts and, uh, you know, she's just copying. You've been in the media, actually, your entire career and have struggled uh, with people attacking you. How do you, what do you do? How do you practice self-care when that happens? Well, I'll quote my many, you know, who's the, the extraordinary woman who did the intervention on me and invited me to stay for inpatient treatment and then became my first sponsor and 12-step program, you know, it's, it all really boils down to that internal healthy self-esteem and healthy boundaries, right? And there's also a, a handy little rule of thumb. It's, it's easy to say, it's none of my business what other people think of me. I mean, that's a, that's a powerful truism. And how do I take that from my head to my heart? And this, this handy little saying is, you know, a third of the people are going to love me no matter what I do. A third of the people are going to dislike me no matter what I do. And a third of the people really don't give a shit. <laughs> and that group of people may, may switch around. You know, some people may jump ship and change their opinions. And, you know, I think that it's important to be authentic to myself and to have a strong sense of who I am and what my core values and principles are and to live by my principles and to know that I have this unassailable sense of my own identity and to know the hill on which I'm willing to die, you know? And for me, that hill absolutely is gender and sex equality, Mm, mm. you know, and I will withstand any storm for that. Well, you really have dedicated the last 20 years to that through your work with me and PSI and now also with UNFPA. 
and you're just unstoppable. You've written a book, All That Is Bitter and Sweet, which is the name of this show. And now you're in the process of writing another book about yeah. some of the things that have happened to you. Give us a preview. What's going to be in the book? <laughs> what are the chapter headlines? Well, I write a lot about Congo, you know, how I ended up back in DRC. I mean, my, my trips to Congo with, with PSI were incredibly formative, you know, to the East where there's so much sexual and gender-based violence. And the trip I did as part of the Clinton Global Initiative and seeing the conflict mining and children digging for and panning for, for the minerals that make our phones vibrate and blink and light up and make the sounds tingle. And, um, and of course, uh, female mutilation that happens a lot in the Congo. Yes. And early child enforced marriage, which is just another way for child marriage and labor slavery, for um, sex slavery and labor slavery. And the fact that there's, you know, still, when I started with PSI and DRC, there's still only, to flip it to make the bigger impact, 92% of women of reproductive age don't have access to family planning option. And so the fertility is just out of control, which doesn't allow women's bodies to recover in between delivering babies and they don't have access to education and they have to haul the water from the river and, you know, they sit inside their mud huts and inhale the smoke from the fires that they burn and they cook all day and they forage and they would just do this backbreaking work carrying the firewood. And it, I mean, the life of a woman in DRC is, is exceedingly difficult and grueling. And so, and now I go all the time because the bonobos, because we have our research camp in a part, in a very remote part of the rainforest. So I write a lot about, you know, how I got there and the part of the bonobos and I'm writing about the accident. And then, you know, I'm a personal essayist at heart, but it's always includes a lot of feminism and then a story that related back to the childhood and finding my recovery and empowerment and, you know, I definitely write the story about how Dario and I chose to, to close our marriage and he came to me and asked me to be the godmother of his firstborn child with his now incredible wife, whom I just love and adore and support so much. And a story of obviously how I chose to be the name source in the New York Times about Harvey and just things, you know, and how I have such a great relationship today with my parents and can accept all this love they have to give me when my childhood was obviously basically so rotten, <laughs> you know, how that kind of magic happens, you know, when they really weren't able to care for me properly and how we get to where we are now, where I'm being inducted into the Arts and Sciences Hall of Fame at the University of Kentucky, and they have to put extra seats at the table because everyone in my damn family showing up for me, you know, and they weren't able to show up for me for so many years. Well, I distinctly remember you guys, you, Wynona and Naomi on Oprah and Wynona getting up and singing, I want to know where love is. Yeah. Oh, that was just, I mean. She's a belter. Well, first of all, she can sing. Let's be honest. <laughs> right. Girl can sing. How is she? And how's, how's your mom? Uh, so sister's really happy and she's on the road and mom is just sweet. You know, I also, like you did, I grew up with a parent with an untreated mental illness and that was just agonizing for all of us. And, you know, today she gets help for that. And, you know, she's very dear. She hugs me and tells me I'm an extraordinary woman and, you know, she gives me the best love she has to offer. Mm. And you are an extraordinary woman, Ashley. And, We've all seen what's happened to you when you had your accident in the Congo, and it was horrific. How are you recovering now? And I mean, you look marvelous. You really look good. Thank you. But it was obviously very traumatic. It was, you know, it was very traumatic. I was, um, you know, we go for about six weeks in January and then again for a month in June and live in the rainforest. And I get up about 3.30, 3.45 in the morning and start walking to where the bonobos made their nests in the treetops the night before. And we walk in the dark and I use a headlamp and my head torch was dim that day. There was, there was something defective about it, even though I had put batteries in the night before. And I just had a long, powerful stride going because I was trying to catch up with the person in front of me to borrow light from their lamp. And I just was looking ahead and not straight down at my feet. And I tripped on... Um, we think my toe got stuck in a, in a root and then I tripped over a fallen tree and just, I knew my leg was breaking as I was falling and I called out, my leg is breaking. And, um, you know, it was 55 hours of, 
of a badly broken leg in four places and deep nerve damage to the perennial nerve before I got any medical treatment. And, you know, what was kind of extraordinary about that is the day before I had finished reading this book by Father Richard Rohr, this radical Franciscan priest I like, uh, called The Spirituality of the Twelve Steps. And naturally it has 12 chapters, but there's this bonus 13th chapter in which he speculates about why God lets us suffer. And what is it about this higher power that just allows there to be suffering in the world if God can potentially intervene and erase suffering? And his conclusion, which he sustains quite beautifully in a few pages, is that he believes God suffers with us. And I had read that chapter the day before I fell. Mm. Mm. And I just chose to believe that there was something that was suffering with me while I was like an animal. I mean, I just... I just let my body be totally wild and animalistic. I saw images of you being carried through the rainforest in a stretcher to get you to transportation to take you to South Africa. I mean, what was that like? Were you in so much pain? As you know, you and I have had a similar, <laughs> I broke my arm on top of a mountain in India and you broke your leg in a rainforest in Congo. I guess we are adventurers and these things happen, but were you in so much pain? How did you cope? I really don't know, Kate. I really don't know. I mean, I don't know how the mind and the body and the soul come together to manage to endure the unendurable. I mean, I bit a stick. I screamed. I howled. I convulsed. I never did pass out. I wished that I could. Mm -hmm. Was your partner with you at the time? Yes. Yes, he was with me. Yeah. I mean, it took two hours for him to get to me. So he wasn't with you when you had the accident, but he came after you'd had the accident. Yeah, he was staying in camp that day. And so somebody went back and woke him up and then he arrived at the scene where I was laying on the forest floor. How long were you in hospital in South Africa? I was in hospital in South Africa about nine days. And then I was medevaced to Tennessee. You know, but when I got to South Africa, my leg didn't have a pulse and I was hemorrhaging. And if I had been medevaced to Europe, I would have bled to death. Ashley, how has this accident changed you today? That's a really good question. You know, I was, I, was, I was sharing with one of my bonus nieces, who's a really mature young woman. And I think that it showed me that, you know, because I do think as, as animalistic as I was, my mind was, was pretty skilled. And I think it showed me that all the work I've done and the development of my meditation practice and how hard I've tried to heal, that that really was with me throughout those 55 hours. And this doesn't make me good, right, and perfect. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but there was a certain grace that stayed with me. You know, I knew that I couldn't have expectations, for example, about when I might get help or if there would be a painkiller or or anything, you know, and I just had no expectations. And I knew that I could only do it one breath at a time. And, you know, I was able to say please and thank you. And may I have a drink of water? And I didn't make it anybody else's fault. And I didn't take it out on the people around me. And I also could remember things like, you know, my higher power shows up in the people around me and, and wears skin. And that people were offering me everything that they had was just their presence you know, and it was their compassion and their empathy and that that had to be enough. You know, and I like Tara Brock, this, this Dharma teacher, this Buddhist teacher, and I was able to remember something that I heard in one of her Dharma talks is when you get to your edge, soften. And I was at my edge, you know, and then I would get to the edge of my edge and I would try to soften and I would try to find more spaces inside of me. And so I think that, you know, to the extent that I could be, I was as skilled as I could be. And that's something that really helped. And, you know, at one point my partner came to me and he was like, I just have to talk. And I was able to set all my pain aside and just hold space for him because he was traumatized too. And I think that was just a miracle that I was capable of doing that. And so at all the work I put in, it was just, it just came to, it coalesced in those 55 hours. Wow. What an incredible tragedy and experience that you had. And I feel you. Um, I have to tell you, actually, that when it happened, so many of our colleagues from around the world reached out to me and said, well, we obviously can't get in touch with her, but um, if she needs anything at all. And actually, a couple in South Africa said, hey, we're here. Should we bring food to the, uh, to the hospital? But 
obviously you were recovering. And also, you know, I have to add, I also learned, I mean, I know the difference that a few dollars makes, but I had the $30 to pay for the motorcycle transportation to get me the five hours from, you know, I was carried in the rainforest for, for three hours on a, on a makeshift stretcher. But then I had the $30 to pay for the motorbike transportation for the five hours where I sat holding my my leg together with my bare hands. And if I hadn't had that $30, I just would have stayed there. And Were you on the back of a motorcycle? Yes, with, with DDA driving and then Maradona holding me up in case I passed out and fell off. Oh my goodness. To get you to the hospital? To get me to the airfield where the bush plane picked us up. Wow, Ashley. What an incredible disaster. But yes, you had the $30 and not many people, as we know, have those resources. So you were very lucky. Yes. Mm. Wishing you a speedy recovery. Thank you. I know you're doing so well and I know that you're gearing up for your next trip in January and you're getting right back in the bush. I'm going right back to the Congo. That's where I belong. Oh, do you love it? Uh, I love it. Yeah. It feels good to me. I remember we did a trip to Rwanda and you went off to the Congo to do the work. And I <laughs> was like, no, I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to go see the, the white mountain gorillas. And, and so I, I, I know where your passion is coming from. That was an extraordinary opportunity to go hang out with the gorillas. Um, yeah. There's only about a hundred of them, I believe. We hiked two hours up the mountain and and sat with them. Actually, I got charged. One charged after me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think they took a little bit of a fancy to me. (laughs) They are 99.9% us after all. So he's not made of wood, is he? (laughs) So Ashley, as you know, the show is called Sex, Body and Soul. I'd like to end part one, because we're going to do part two of this podcast and go even deeper. But I'd like to end this segment with three things that you can tell me about you and what you do for your sex, body, and soul, as in three things that you think can be helpful to the listeners. One thing in sex, one thing for your body, and then one thing for your soul. Number one, I have so much to say. (laughs) We'll go for it. We'll start the next podcast. <laughs> go, go, go. So number one, coconut oil. Ooh, coconut oil. I put it in my hair and on my skin. Is that what you do? Oh, you put it down there. Coconut oil is, is great. For down there? Yeah. Ooh. Coconut oil is great. Oh, okay, good. Number two, um, body. Yeah. Just skin on skin. Just be skin on skin as much as you can be. I mean, we're starved for touch in our culture. We are. We are. You know, in Congo, men walk around holding hands. I know. Holding hands is such a wonderful thing. Yeah. And and just when you pass by each other, just uh, you brush your hand on each other's backs or lay your hand on top of his hand or just touch, just touch each other and then go skin on skin as much as you can. Meanwhile, in the workforce now, we can't do any of that. You know, we're, we're old school at this point, Ashley. You can't do any of that. Even when you, you, you know, you spend more time with colleagues in the office than you spend with anybody else. You start to love each other. I love that point that you just made, skin on skin. That's, of course, what they tell you when you give birth. Immediately, the baby goes on your breast. And you, it is skin on skin, naked, you're naked, the baby is naked, skin on skin. That's a really yeah. good point. And with your partner, non-sexual holding in touch is build safety. Mm, mm, I love that. Now soul, that's a big one. Quiet time in the morning, QT. That's what you do? Oh my gosh, got to. The routine, as <laughs> it's sometimes called. Yeah, I just, I just think that it's, it establishes me inside of myself, you know. And I mean, journaling, I still journal. I mean, I have found my first journal from when I was 12 years old. So it's a well-worn practice for me. But just taking that time to be with myself and consolidate. And of course, I read a couple of different meditation books from my different 12-step program and 
do some journaling to empty the mind and process and reflect and maybe write a letter to higher power or, you know, a a lot of gratitude, a lot of reflecting on if there was intimacy the night before, you know, yummy, how, you know, exquisite, delightful. And sometimes it's 20 minutes, sometimes it's two hours, depending on what the day allows but having making conscious contact with myself and my higher power before I make conscious contact with another human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the rituals that you go through in the morning? I know you're a huge tea drinker. You're all mm-hmm. about aromatherapy and oils. And I learned all that from you. I think I started drinking ginger tea because you mm-hmm. got me onto that at some point, green tea and all the oils and things that you do. I was just... I, you are the best smelling person in the entire world. I mean, you used to come out and I would be following her around just smelling you. <laughs> it would just make me feel very calm. You know, are, are you still doing that? What are some of your favorite? I like Lang Lang. I still like Lang Lang. I think that smells very nice. And I also wear Parma Violets because my mama wore Parma Violets. Yes. Lang Lang. I haven't heard of that. Is it L-A-N? Y L A N G. Why? Ooh. And what what is that? What is that a herb? Where does that come from? It's an essential oil. Mm. Okay, I'm gonna get that immediately. Ashley, it breaks my heart, but we're gonna have to say goodbye for the moment. And any words of wisdom to leave us all with? Any thoughts? I'll just go back to what we, you know, touched on earlier and that you mentioned at the start, which is self-care isn't selfish, it is self-esteem. And the trauma not transformed is trauma we will transfer, you know, so we have to take care of ourselves first in order to be a valuable service to the world and be that wounded healer. Ashley, I have so much gratitude to you as a teacher to me and to the world, the incredible impact that you've had, the willingness to be of service, to listen, to do, to act. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Kate. I appreciate you so much. And you've made a big difference in my life. And I love you. I love you. I'll see you soon. Part two. Okay. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all of my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. Be sure to sign up for our email list at thebodyagency.com for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotion code to get a 10% discount, podcast10. Thanks for listening.